Chapter Seventeen of the Marrow of Tradition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Chapter Seventeen The Social Aspirations of Captain McBain. It was only eleven o'clock, and Delamere, not being at all sleepy, and feeling somewhat out of sorts as the combined results of his afternoon's debauch and the snubbing he had received at Clara's hands, directed the Major's coachman, who had taken charge of the trap upon its arrival, to drive him to the St. James Hotel before returning the horses to the stable. First, however, the coachman left Ellis at his boarding-house, which was nearby the two young men parted with as scant courtesy as was possible without an open rupture delamere hoped to find at the hotel some form of distraction to fill in an hour or two before going home ill fortune favored him by placing in his way the burly form of captain george mcbain who was sitting in an armchair alone smoking a midnight cigar under the hotel balcony Upon Delamere's making known his desire for amusement, the captain proposed a small game of poker in his own room. McBain had been waiting for some such convenient opportunity. We have already seen that the captain was desirous of social recognition, which he had not yet obtained beyond the superficial acquaintance acquired by association with men about town. He had determined to assault society in its citadel by seeking membership in the Clarendon Club, of which most gentlemen of the best families of the city were members. The Clarendon Club was a historic institution, and its membership a social cult, the temple of which was located just off the main street of the city, in a dignified old colonial mansion which had housed it for the nearly one hundred years during which it had maintained its existence unbroken. There had grown up around it many traditions and special usages. Membership in the Clarendon was the sine qua non of high social standing, and was conditional upon two of three things, birth, wealth, and breeding. Breeding was the prime essential, but with rare exceptions must be backed by either birth or money. Having decided, therefore, to seek admission into this social arcanum, the captain, who had either not quite appreciated the standard of the Clarendon's membership, or had failed to see that he fell beneath it, looked about for an intermediary through whom to approach the object of his desire. He had already thought of Tom Delamere in this connection, having with him such an acquaintance as one forms around a hotel and having long ago discovered that Delamere was a young man of superficially amiable disposition, vicious instincts, lax principles, and a weak will, and which was quite as much to the purpose a member of the Clarendon Club. Possessing mental characteristics almost entirely opposite, Delamere and the captain had certain tastes in common, and had smoked, drunk, and played cards together more than once. Still more to his purpose, McBain had detected Delamere trying to cheat him at cards. He had said nothing about this discovery, but had merely noted it as something which at some future time might prove useful. 
the captain had not suffered by delamere's deviation from the straight line of honor for while tom was as clever with the cards as might be expected of a young man who had devoted most of his leisure for several years to handling them mcbain was past master in their manipulation during a stormy career he had touched more or less pitch and had escaped few sorts of defilement the appearance of delamere at a late hour unaccompanied and wearing upon his countenance an expression in which the captain read aright the craving for mental and physical excitement gave him the opportunity for which he had been looking mcbain was not the man to lose an opportunity nor did delamere require a second invitation neither was it necessary during the progress of the game for the captain to press upon his guest the contents of the decanter which stood upon the table within convenient reach the captain permitted delamere to win from him several small amounts after which he gradually increased the stakes and turned the tables delamere with every instinct of a gamester was no more a match for mcbain in self-control than in skill when the young man had lost all his money the captain expressed his entire willingness to accept notes of hand for which he happened to have convenient blanks in his apartment when delamere flushed with excitement and wine rose from the gaming table at two o'clock he was vaguely conscious that he owed mcbain a considerable sum but could not have stated how much his opponent who was entirely cool and collected ran his eye carelessly over the bits of paper to which delamere had attached his signature just one thousand dollars even he remarked the announcement of this total had as sobering an effect upon delamere as though he had been suddenly deluged with a shower of cold water for a moment he caught his breath he had not a dollar in the world with which to pay this sum his only source of income was an allowance from his grandfather the monthly installment of which drawn that very day he had just lost to mcbain before starting in upon the notes of hand i'll give you your revenge another time said mcbain as they rose luck is against you tonight, and i'm unwilling to take advantage of a clever young fellow like you meantime he added tossing the notes of hand carelessly on a bureau don't worry about these bits of paper such small matters shouldn't cut any figure between friends but if you are around the hotel tomorrow i should like to speak to you upon another subject very well captain returned tom somewhat ungraciously delamere had been completely beaten with his own weapons he had tried desperately to cheat mcbain he knew perfectly well that mcbain had discovered his efforts and had cheated him in turn for the captain's play had clearly been gauged to meet his own the biter had been bit and could not complain of the outcome the following afternoon mcbain met delamere at the hotel and bluntly requested the latter to propose him for membership in the clarendon club delamere was annoyed at this request his aristocratic gorge rose at the presumption of this son of an overseer and ex-driver of convicts mcbain was good enough to win money from or even to lose money too but not good enough to be recognized as a social equal he would instinctively have blackballed mcbain had he been proposed by someone else with what grace could he put himself forward as the sponsor for this impossible social aspirant moreover 
it was clearly a vulgar cold-blooded attempt on mcbane's part to use his power over him for a personal advantage well now captain mcbane returned delamere diplomatically i've never put any one up yet and it's not regarded as good form for so young a member as myself to propose candidates i'd much rather you'd ask some older man oh well replied mcbane just as you say only i thought you had cut your eye teeth delamere was not pleased with mcbane's tone his remark was not acquiescent though couched in terms of assent there was a sneering savagery about it too that left delamere uneasy he was in a measure in mcbane's power he could not pay the thousand dollars unless it fell from heaven or he could win it from someone else he would not dare go to his grandfather for help mr delamere did not even know that his grandson gambled he might not have objected perhaps to a gentleman's game with moderate stakes but he would certainly tom knew very well have looked upon a thousand dollars as a preposterous sum to be lost at cards by a man who had nothing with which to pay it it was part of mr delamere's creed that a gentleman should not make debts that he was not reasonably able to pay there was still another difficulty if he had lost the money to a gentleman and it had been his first serious departure from mr delamere's perfectly well understood standard of honor tom might have risked a confession and thrown himself on his grandfather's mercy but he owed other sums here and there which to his just now much disturbed imagination loomed up in alarming number and amount he had recently observed signs of coldness too on the part of certain members of the club moreover like most men with one commanding vice he was addicted to several subsidiary forms of iniquity which in case of a scandal were more than likely to come to light he was clearly and most disagreeably caught in the net of his own hypocrisy his grandfather believed him a model of integrity a pattern of honor he could not afford to have his grandfather undeceived he thought of old mrs ochiltree if she were a liberal soul she could give him a thousand dollars now when he needed it instead of making him wait until she died which might not be for ten years or more for a legacy which was steadily growing less and might be entirely exhausted if she lived long enough some old people were very tenacious of life she was a careless old woman too he reflected and very foolishly kept her money in the house latterly she had been growing weak and childish some day she might be robbed and then his prospective inheritance from that source would vanish into thin air with regard to this debt to mcbane if he could not pay it he could at least gain a long respite by proposing the captain at the club true he would undoubtedly be blackballed but before this inevitable vent his name must remain posted for several weeks during which interval mcbane would be conciliatory on the other hand to propose mcbane would arouse suspicion of his own motives it might reach his grandfather's ears and lead to a demand for an explanation which it would be difficult to make clearly the better plan would be to temporize with mcbane with the hope that something might intervene to remove this cursed obligation suppose captain he said affably we leave the matter open for a few days this is a thing that can't be rushed 
I'll feel the pulse of my friends and yours, and when we get the lay of the land, the affair can be accomplished much more easily. Well, that's better, returned McBain, somewhat mollified. If you'll do that. To be sure I will, replied Tom easily, too much relieved to resent, if not too preoccupied to perceive the implied doubt of his veracity. McBain ordered and paid for more drinks, and they parted on amicable terms. "'We'll let these notes stand for the time being, Tom,' said McBain, with significant emphasis, when they separated. Delamere winced at the familiarity. He had reached that degree of moral deterioration where, while principles were of little moment, the externals of social intercourse possessed an exaggerated importance. McBain had never before been so personal. He had addressed the young aristocrat first as Mr. Delamere, then, as their acquaintance advanced, as Delamere. He had now reached the abbreviated Christian name stage of familiarity. There was no lower depth to which Tom could sink, unless McBain should invent a nickname by which to address him. He did not like McBain's manner. It was characterized by a veiled insolence which was exceedingly offensive. He would go over to the club and try his luck with some honest player. Perhaps something might turn up to relieve him from his embarrassment. He put his hand in his pocket mechanically and found it empty. In the present state of his credit, he could hardly play without money. A thought struck him. Leaving the hotel, he hastened home, where he found Sandy dusting his famous suit of clothes on the back piazza. Mr. Delamere was not at home, having departed for Bellevue about two o'clock, leaving Sandy to follow him in the morning. "'Hello, Sandy!' exclaimed Tom, with an assumed jocularity which he was very far from feeling. "'What are you doing with those gorgeous garments?' "'I'm a-dustin' em, Mr. Tom. That's what I'm a-doin'. "'There's something wrong about these clothes of mine. "'I don't never seem to be able to keep em clean no more. "'If I believed in them old-timey sayings, "'I allowed it was a witch come here every night "'and took em out and woe em, "'or took me out and ride me in em. "'There was something wrong about that cakewalk business, too. "'That I ain't never understood, "'and don't know how to count for, "'lest there was some kind of devilishness going on "'that don't show on the surface.' Sandy asked Tom irrelevantly, "'Have you any money in the house?' "'Yes, sir. I got the money Mars John give me to get them things to take out to Bellevue in the morning.' "'I mean money of your own.' "'I got a quarter to buy a tobacco with,' returned Sandy cautiously. "'Is that all? Haven't you some saved up?' "'Well, yes, Mr. Tom,' returned Sandy with evident reluctance. There's a few dollars put away in my bureau drawer for a rainy day. Not much, sir. I'm a little short this afternoon, Sandy, and need some money right away. Grandfather isn't here, so I can't get any from him. Let me take what you have for a day or two, Sandy, and I'll return it with good interest. Now, Mr. Tom, said Sandy seriously, I don't mind letting you take my money. "'but I hope you ain't gonna use it for none of them rakely goings on a yawn, "'gambling and betting and so forth. "'Your granddaddy'll find out about you yet "'if you don't mind your P's and Q's. "'I does my best to keep your misdoings from em, "'and since I've been turned out of the church, "'through no fault of my own, God knows, 
I've told lies enough about you to sink a ship. But it ain't right, Mr. Tom, it ain't right. And I only does it for the sake of the family honor that Mars John set so much stole by and to save his feelings. For the doctor says he mustn't get excited by nothing. Uh, it might bring on another stroke. That's right, Sandy, replied Tom approvingly. But the family honor is as safe in my hands as in grandfather's own, and I'm going to use the money for an excellent purpose. In fact, to relieve a case of genuine distress. And I'll hand it back to you in a day or two, perhaps tomorrow. Fetch me the money, Sandy. That's a good darky. All right, Mr. Tom, you shall have the money. But I wants to tell you, sir, that in all the years I has worked for your granddaddy, you never called me a docket in my face, sir. Course, I knows there's white folks and black folks. But there's manners, sir. There's manners. And gentlemen ought to be the ones to use em, sir. If they ain't to be forgot entirely. There, there, Sandy, returned Tom in a conciliatory tone. I beg your pardon. I've been associating with some northern white folks at the hotel, and picked up the word from them. You're a high-toned colored gentleman, Sandy, the finest one on the footstool. Still muttering to himself, Sandy retired to his own room, which was in the house, so that he might be always near his master. He soon returned with a time-stained leather pocket-book and a coarse-knit cotton sock, from which two receptacles he painfully extracted a number of bills and coins. You count that, Mr. Tom, so I'll know how much I'm letting you have. This isn't worth anything, said Tom, pushing aside one roll of bills. It's Confederate money. So it is, sir. It ain't worth nothing now, but it has been money, and who can tell but what it might be money again? The rest of them bills is greenbacks. They'll pass all right, I reckon. The good money amounted to about fifty dollars, which Delamere thrust eagerly into his pocket. You won't say anything to Grandfather about this, will you, Sandy? he said as he turned away. No, sir, course I won't. Does I ever tell him about your goings on? If I did, he added to himself as the young men disappeared down the street. I wouldn't have time to do nothing else, hardly. I don't know whether I'll see that money again or no. Though I imagine old gentleman wouldn't let me lose it if he knowed. But I ain't going to tell him, whether I get my money back or no. For he's just so wrap up in that boy that I believe it'd just break his heart to find out how he's been going on. Dr. Price has told me not to let the old gentleman get excited, as there's no telling what might happen. He's been good to me, he has and I'm going to take care of him. That's what I is, as long as I has the chance. Delamere went directly to the club and soon lounged into the card room where several of the members were engaged in play. He sauntered here and there, too much absorbed in his own thoughts, to notice that the greetings he received were less cordial than those usually exchanged between the members of a small and select social club. Finally, when Augustus commonly and more appropriately called Gus, Davidson came into the room, Tom stepped toward him. "'Will you take a hand in a game, Gus?' "'Don't care if I do,' said the other. "'Let's sit over here.' Davidson led the way to a table near the fireplace, 
near which stood a tall screen, which at times occupied various places in the room. Davidson took the seat opposite the fireplace, leaving Delamere with his back to the screen. Delamere staked half of Sandy's money and lost. He staked the rest and determined to win, because he could not afford to lose. He had just reached out his hand to gather in the stakes when he was charged with cheating at cards, of which two members, who had quietly entered the room and posted themselves behind the screen, had secured specific proof. A meeting of the membership committee was hastily summoned, it being an hour at which most of them might be found at the club. To avoid a scandal and to save the feelings of a prominent family, Delamere was given an opportunity to resign quietly from the club on condition that he paid all his gambling debts within three days, and took an oath never to play cards again for money. This latter condition was made at the suggestion of an elderly member who apparently believed that a man who would cheat at cards would stick at perjury. Delamere acquiesced very promptly. The taking of the oath was easy. The payment of some fifteen hundred dollars of debts was a different matter. He went away from the club thoughtfully, and it may be said, in full justice to a past which was far from immaculate, that in his present thoughts he touched a depth of scoundrelism far beyond anything of which he had as yet deemed himself capable. When a man of good position, of whom much is expected, takes to evil courses, his progress is apt to resemble that of a well-bred woman who is started on the downward path. The pace is all the swifter because of the distance which must be traversed to reach the bottom. Delamere had made rapid headway. Having hitherto played with sin, his servant had now become his master, and held him in an iron grip. End of chapter 17 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista